Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, Bio member Kevin McRuder talks with Doug Melville about his book Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals, published by Atria Black Privilege Publishing in November 2023. This interview was recorded on January 24, 2024 via Zoom. This is a fascinating book. It is kind of double biography and memoir in some ways. Who are you referring to when you describe the key figures as invisible generals and why? Yeah, so uh, the book Invisible Generals uh, follows the story of America's first two black generals, a father and a son with the same name, Ben Davis Jr. and Ben Davis Sr. Ben Davis Jr. was the centerpiece of my family, raised my dad, who was his nephew from the time he was seven years old, as if it was his son. And in my personal life, Ben Jr., I would see him spend all the holidays with him in the family reunions, but he bought me my first Apple computer, my first set of golf clubs so I could learn how to golf, my first car at 16, and paid for my university. So for me, he was really the reason that I was able to have all the things that you know, when you come up and you hope someone in your family can help support you besides your parents, he was really the person that did that in my life. And I think the fascinating thing about the title is when we hear general, we typically think of high profile. Mm -hmm. But your title is saying that they were generals, but not necessarily high profile. Yeah. And that was kind of the complexity. And the interesting part of this story was at the start of World War II, there were 335,000 soldiers in the military, and there was only two black officers. And that was Ben Davis Jr. and Ben Davis Sr., a father and a son. They were treated as if they were invisible by the military, by the press, due to their race. But for them, it was a moment where a father and son could live their version of the American dream. And it helped me understand that sometimes we get bitter or we get upset or we think things aren't fair. But going through this book writing process and research process really had me understand that we don't even know how good we have it. And sometimes the sacrifices of those before us were much greater than we really understand. And that was some of the appreciation I had understanding their duality. Can you talk about Ben Davis Sr. and how he some ways blazed the trail for his son. Ben Davis Sr., his dad was a gentleman by the name of Lewis Davis, and I touch on him a little bit in the book, but Lewis Davis was a servant and ended up growing up in the house of General Logan, who many people know from Logan Airport in Boston or Logan Circle and Square in Chicago and D.C., and General Logan's best friend was President Ulysses S. Grant. So Lewis Davis actually was the babysitter for Ulysses S. Grant's oldest son. And this is really where our family started to get engaged and involved with relationships of individuals in the White House. And if you think about the late 1860s, 
the fact that this man had the ability to go in and out of the White House at a time when people were still enslaved really had you realize the power of what was happening in the United States of America. So Lewis Davis had a son, Ben Davis Sr., and wanted his son to work in Washington, D.C., and his son wanted to fight. So they were able to get the two signatures required to get Ben Sr. into West Point, which was a challenge to get these signatures. And when he got the signatures, President McKinley rejected the application because they didn't want to get in the habit of allowing blacks into West Point. At the time, the military was segregated, so allowing a black to be in command was going against the rules because white cadets and officers never had to salute blacks. And that West Point education would have positioned him typically to command. That's exactly right. So when he got rejected by McKinley, he ran off to Wyoming and joined the Buffalo Soldiers, learned how to be an equestrian expert. And then in 1901, two years after he went over there, he gets a note from President McKinley that he was going to promote him to officer and save him two years of his life that he didn't have to put in by going to West Point. And soon after that, President McKinley died in office and Ben Davis Sr. became uh, a military black officer. And how does he navigate that journey from officer to general? He becomes an officer in 1901, finds a wife, gets married, has two children, and in the birth of his third child, his wife dies in childbirth. So he becomes a single dad, raising three children as the military's only Black officer. And this is where I put myself back in his shoes and go, this is just a burden that is too much to bear. And he brings his son to a traveling barnstorming aviation show and pays one week's salary for his son to fly in a plane for a half hour. And when his son comes down, he goes, Daddy, I want to be a pilot. And Ben Sr. works with his son and trains him to become a West Point graduate so he can graduate in the top third of his class and be able to be a pilot. Aviation was just starting, and Ben Sr. knew that if he waited for the private sector, it would never happen in his lifetime. But in the public sector, if you could graduate from West Point in the top third of your class, you can pick any assignment and said, this is a surefire way. So Ben Sr. realizes to get his son into West Point, you have to get the signature of a congressperson and an officer. Well, he was the officer, the dad. But there was only one black congressperson in the whole United States of America, and that was Oscar DePriest in Illinois. So Ben Sr. has to sell the family home in Washington, D.C. that his dad, Lewis, left to him, relocate to Illinois to live in the district for one year so his son can get the signature. And when his son takes the test, he fails. And he doesn't say, son, this was a nightmare. I sold the house for your dream. He says, you got to take it again. Goes back after one year of education, takes the test again, and gets into West Point in 1932 and arrives at campus, and they don't know he's Black. On the first night after getting assigned a room at the end of the hallway, Ben hears the next morning, the pitter-patter of the soldiers all going down to the sinks for a meeting. 
and he thinks that he didn't get a message at his door because he's in a converted room with no roommate at the end of the hall. So he dresses up and runs downstairs. And when he gets to the room, the door is locked and he listens in. And it's an all hands meeting of all the staff, all the cadets and all the workers on campus. And they said, we accidentally let an N word in. You are to treat him as if he is invisible until he drops out. Ben calls his dad and says, dad, this is what happened. And his dad said, there's 13 million blacks pulling for you on the outside. I trained you for this moment, write the date of your graduation on the wall. And no matter what anyone does, make sure that you graduate from West Point in the top third of the class so you can live your dream to be a pilot. And let me just tell you something, Kevin. This man went to West Point for four years without one single human interaction outside of the classroom or the line of duty. Not allowed in the library, not allowed a study buddy, failed boxing because no one would get in the ring with him, failed CPR because no one would touch him. And the most degrading part that he would always say was three times a day you had to eat with your cadets in the mess hall. And you have to ask for permission to sit in order for you to be able to sit down and eat. And he would spend his entire time, three times a day, lunch, breakfast, and dinner, going around asking for permission to sit. And no one would allow him to sit and eat for four years. Did you ask him about what it, that was like? I know that you had a lot of interaction with them, but you also made clear he was a man of few words. Very few words. Honestly, Kevin, I would have thought the man was a librarian. You know, you would not believe that he was the commander of the Tuskegee Airmen of the 13th Air Forces. And he would just say, what would you want to do in this life, Douglas? How can I help you today? Education is the key to success. The man was so quiet, but about the West Point in particular, you know, in my family, there was never a mention of West Point, good, bad, or indifferent. You just didn't bring up those two words and never spoke to Ben about it. And it was something my dad told me from the time I was a child, you know, when you're around Ben, don't ask him about college. Don't talk about West Point as I got older and understood what West Point was. So we never really knew anything about it. And then later in life, that was when I understood really after he had passed away in 2002, more about his experience at West Point, because I just didn't really have the context to really understand what he was going through. He wasn't the first Black person admitted. So Charles Young was a person you talk about, and I suspect he had similar challenges. From what I've read about him, it seems like he responded similarly, that he looked forward rather than that. Yeah, I think uh, the Black experience in the military, Ben and his father were unique because they were a father and a son, mm -hmm. because they shared a bond, because they had the same name, because the dad and the son were able to work together. And in 1936, when Ben graduated from West Point and the graduation photo is Ben and his dad shaking hands, at that time in 1936, they were the only two Black officers until the start of World War II. What happened was because of the segregation, 
the military didn't know what to do with them. So they put them in a Jeep and had them drive around to black colleges teaching military science, army war strategy, ROTC equivalent. And they did that for four years, telling these men, keep your chin up, keep your head up, believe in yourself. We are examples of men that made it through. So if you work hard and you know what you want to do, your performance can outlast the negativity that people are putting on race. And in 1940, when FDR was looking to run for president, all the polling showed that he was very low with the black vote. Blacks had typically voted Republican up until that point due to the election of Abraham Lincoln, who created the party. So the Democrats were having trouble with the black vote. And lo and behold, he brings on Ben Davis Sr. to be an advisor of Negro policy to help him get the black vote and says, what can I do to get these people to support me? And he said, you have to show that the military is fair and provides equal opportunity for everyone. And that includes flying airplanes. This has been senior. Ben senior. And FDR says, well, who would lead that? And he said, my son. And the reason that that was so pivotal is because that was the creation and the funding of the Tuskegee Airmen. And Ben Jr., when he flew down to Alabama, became the commander of the Tuskegee experiment is what it was called at the time with four other men. And when five men passed the flight test, FDR said, we're going to go ahead with it and build an entire group of black pilots. Only 2% of blacks at the time graduated college and the literacy rate was under 10%. So he was thinking we would never be able to get a group of black pilots to Tuskegee, Alabama in the middle of the summer in the segregated South to be pilots. But because Ben Jr. and his dad had gone to the black colleges for four years, they just said, come on down. And 15,000 men and women came down to Tuskegee. And those 15,000 people, Kevin, were the Tuskegee Airmen. 1,000 pilots, 14,000 ground staff were commanded by a 29-year-old who had never commanded anyone who was Ben Davis Jr. And this was the beginning and the creation of the Tuskegee Airmen that we all know. That's fascinating. You talk about the way that you came to realize you needed to write this book was a movie Mm -hmm. about the Tuskegee Airmen. Can you talk about what you saw that really pushed you? I tell the story now looking back, but at the time, you know, my first 10 years out of the college, I was a marketing executive and I helped entertainers create their passion projects. I didn't know too much about the story. I mean, I knew some things, but, you know, didn't really put two and two together. And I tell people when your parents tell you about grandpa and start telling you about their stories, it's not clicking. We don't really know what the draft is. We don't really know war. So I didn't really understand what he had done. And like I said, he was so mild-mannered. And I went to go see the movie Red Tails that I was invited to. And on the night of the screening, when the character for Ben Davis showed up on the screen, he was played by an actor, Terrence Howard. Uh, He was addressed as Colonel Bullard, not 
Colonel Davis. And when I went home, because I was so upset that his name was changed. And at the after party, when I started asking people, everybody just kept saying, Doug, it's Hollywood. Like, it's not a documentary. It's an amalgamation of many different characters that are all put together into one. Like, I don't understand what is the big deal. And I went back home furious. And my dad said, if you think changing the name in the movie is bad, why don't I tell you how I grew up and tell you the story of Ben and his dad, which we called them the Invisible Generals. And my dad started sharing stories about how they had to live in the worst housing. They had to never drive at night. They had to have everything perfect and meticulous and how the military told these two men, we will allow you to stay as generals in the military, but you must live as if you're invisible. And when my dad told me this story, I said, you know, there's probably so much more. And then it brought me back to read their books and go to the Smithsonian and presidential libraries, army war college library, and just start researching and say, what were these two men's journeys? And that was the start of the process to start seeing if I could turn this into a book, because when you first start this, you just don't know if it's going to work out, if a publisher wants it, if the story's there, what the ending, you know, like you just don't know it. That was how the journey started. Can you talk about your sources? Because when you were young and you were in contact with your grandfather, you didn't necessarily appreciate or know all the things he did. And it sounds like you're doing this research after he had died. So what kind of archives, what were the challenges, what was revealed that you didn't know before? Yeah, I think, well, there was some kind of like headlines that were revealed, but the turning point was three years after the movie came out, I had set a Google alert for anything that was coming up with their name and it hadn't gone off in three years. So I didn't know if anybody cared about this story or not, Kevin, I'm just saying. But in 2015, it went off and it was from West Point and they were looking to name a barrack, which is the largest building in the center of the campus after one of three people, Norman Schwarzkopf, William Westmoreland, and Benjamin O. Davis Jr. And I wrote them a note after the alert went off, went up to campus and shared with them what I knew about the story, somewhat what I shared with you today. And they said, we are going to name the building after him because they weren't sure. And then, you know, I didn't know how the process worked, but I just kind of gave it my all. And when they committed to the Davis name on the barracks, that allowed their historian to help me. And he connected me to the Air Force Academy and the Air Force historian Dutch. And there's so many different people that started saying, well, we have his archives here. We have his files here. You should look here. You should look there. And then that helped me understand things that he did. He created the 55 mile an hour speed limit under President Carter after he retired from the military as a federal law. He led the creation of what is now known as the TSA, which was Commercial Airline Security, the United States Air Marshal Program and Sky Marshal Program on a federal level. He led the creation of that. He drew the line that separated Taiwan from mainland China in the Taiwan Strait. It's called the Davis Line. He created the Flying Thunderbirds, which was a group of airplane and aeronautical geniuses that go to different amusement 
and entertainment places on the holidays to help wow different communities and help recruiting. And he commanded everybody up into the three-star level. And in 1998, because he didn't get the fourth star under LBJ, President Clinton elevated him to full four-star general. And I was at that ceremony. So it helped me understand the context of an experience that I had lived and helped drive me to really see all the different contributions that they had. The final thing was when I went to the Smithsonian and they had all the archives of Ben Davis and I wrote a request to see the archives and told them I was the executor of the estate and went down there. And I asked the woman, why has his archives never been displayed? If they are the best archives of any soldier in World War II, which is what they told me, meticulous in order, every single detail, why have they not been displayed? And they told me that when the items were being removed from their home in Arlington, Virginia, and being transported to the Smithsonian, Ben's wife of 62 years stood at the door with a knife and scraped the word African off of all the plaques because she said, we fought our whole lives to be addressed as Americans. And in the line of history, we would like to be known and addressed as such. And because the word African is X'd out on so many items, the Smithsonian has never displayed the collection. The final area I want to explore is the decisions you made about organizing the book, because covering two people is a challenge, but it's really important that your story is, is in there and it's very natural the way it flows. Can you talk about the decisions? And I know there were challenges to, to writing this. I think the biggest challenge is you have to believe in the editors. <laughs> your editor is your main man, 50 grand. The challenge was the reality of I am a diversity officer. I switched my career from marketing to diversity after seeing the movie because I wanted to ensure those who had not been seen were seen and those that had not been heard were heard. I wanted to kind of build some parallels with my experience, with their experience to show that we still live in a world today where many people are invisible. And many people's accomplishments are just being discovered or just being acknowledged. And I thought it was very important for young readers, new readers, old readers to know in my own life, I have felt invisible and to share some of those stories of how I feel that that is still part of the case today. That was important for me. It's a really, uh, really powerful book. I was curious once I read that you were working in diversity now, as you know, the world of diversity has changed since you were writing this book. And mm -hmm. I'd be curious on your observations as you look at the challenges. Let me tell you, Kevin, <laughs> there's something that I write about in the book about Jesse Jackson. And many people may not know this, but Jesse Jackson held a press conference for the word African-American. So he wanted newspapers to stop using the word Negro in print, and he wanted them to use the term African-American to address Black Americans and so on. 
So he called a bunch of prominent black Americans and all the press and he held a press conference that he was making a speech about the importance of the term African-American. And he called Ben Jr. and asked him if he would endorse the idea. And Ben said, no, I worked my whole life so we could be Americans, not African-Americans, not any other American, but just simple Americans. And when I became a diversity officer, the goal was to widen the markets so we could address all Americans in a commercial way. How could you make advertising that was more inclusive? How could you make products that were more inclusive? And what happened in the 12 years since I became a diversity officer is the topic has become so political and it's about boxing people in, limiting opportunities, using race as a defining factor. When we started in this journey, it was really about how could we get more people involved because the more ideas and minds we have in a room, the more refined an idea will be and the stronger the product will be. Those principles still are true. You know, in the last two years of my life, I traveled to 40 different countries for one week each to understand what is diversity and equity around the world. And I can tell you from a lived experience that it's not about race in most countries. It's about language. It's about accessibility for people. It's about age inclusion. It's about all these different areas, gender, pay equity, that have nothing to do with race. And most people want those things. Most people want accessibility for all. But a certain group of people that have intentionally framed it as baggage and negative is the opposite of the benefit. And the work is still there if we want to call it something else. But these are the type of positions that we need to pay attention to and understand. Is there a book in the future based on what you learned from that? I think so. Worldwide, it sounds like a, a real fascinating next book. Yeah. yeah, Kevin, you know, the thing about it is uh, what is inclusion is important to making sure the workforce works. You mentioned in the book that you divide your time between Switzerland and the U.S. I moved out there for work, but it also helped me uh, have the ability to retrace Ben's steps, travel where he traveled while I wrote the book. When you go live in Europe, a lot of people refer to World War II. So for me, I just wasn't really familiar with it and didn't really know about it in that level. So this was very important for me. And it also helped me have a quiet place to write because when they tell you 70,000 words in order, Kevin, let me tell you, you better be organized. That's a lot of words. Yes, it is. Doug Melville, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I appreciate it. That was bio member Kevin McGruder in conversation with Doug Melville about his book, Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals. It was published by Atria Black Privilege Publishing in November 2023. This interview was recorded via Zoom on January 24, 2024. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website at biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.